It's not a new thing tagging someone as the Shakespeare of whatever. Chuck Berry was the Shakespeare of rock and roll. Evelyn Waugh was the Shakespeare of the semicolon. Vince Scully was the Shakespeare of the broadcast booth. But when someone's tagged this way by the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, right outside Shakespeare's birthplace, and it's someone who pretty much no one's felt this way about before, when that happens, it's likely to make you think, wait, what? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. The person we're talking about is a 17th century Chinese playwright named Tang Sin Tzu. In 2015, on a state visit to Great Britain, Chinese premier Xi Jinping called Tang the Shakespeare of the East. And ever since, the Ministry of Culture for the People's Republic has made a concerted push to elevate Tang to the status of Shakespeare. Now, 2015 was, of course, the year before the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death and a worldwide celebration of his work. It was also the 400th anniversary of Tang's death. Tang's promotion to Shakespeare of China could be viewed as a marketing decision by the Chinese government in an attempt to exert China's soft power in the world. We decided it was worth taking the time to explore just who Tang Xinxu was, and more broadly, to look at what role Shakespeare plays in modern-day China. We brought together two guests who study the intersection of China and Shakespeare. Wei Feng teaches English and Shakespeare at the School of Foreign Languages and Literature at Shandong University in northeastern China. He's joined by Alexa Alice Jubang, professor of English at George Washington University, where she teaches globalization and Asian-European cultural exchange. Alexa is director of GW's Dean's Scholars in Shakespeare, and she's co-founder and co-director of the Global Shakespeare's Video and Performance Archive at MIT. We call this podcast, I See My Reputation is at Stake. Alexa and Wei are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Well, Wei, I'd like to start with you. President Xi Jinping has called uh, Tang Shanzu the Shakespeare of the East. And Tang has also been referred to as China's greatest playwright. Is there a consensus on that in China, though? You know, if there were a, a Jeopardy quiz show in China, would the answer to the greatest Chinese playwright be, who is Tang Shanzu? I don't think so. I mean, there's no... Tang Xianzu might not be the greatest playwright, and some people call him Shakespeare in China or in the East just to promote him, I suppose, to promote him, yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, I don't mean to sound flippant, but but I do get the sense that someone in power somewhere in China just decided, look, this guy died the same year as Shakespeare, why don't we say he's the Chinese Shakespeare and we'll go from there? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Totally, totally. But are there actual genuine commonalities between Tang and Will Shakespeare? Um, humanism, I would say. Humanism. Ah. Alexa, why don't you jump in here? Is Tang the Chinese Shakespeare? I mean, is there a Chinese Shakespeare? There's no Chinese Shakespeare, but Tang has been named multiple times as the Chinese Shakespeare, um, and his peony pavilion has been said to be the Chinese Romeo and Juliet, and so forth and so on. And actually, it's not a recent phenomenon. I think it started in the early 20th century with the effort to establish Chinese drama as a subject of study. But if you look elsewhere, you have Cervantes, in fact, British Library in 2016. They celebrated Shakespeare, Cervantes, and Tang. I don't know what these three 
poets have in common, but probably humanism, as we mentioned, the perceived universal values in their in their place, as well as their national poet status in in their respective countries. And what about this idea of there being commonality between Shakespeare and and Tang? Are the plays in any way similar or parallel? They have so so Tang has um, four great plays. While Shakespeare has a few dozen works circulating, whether penned by himself or were in collaboration with others, we can't really say that there are common arcs of narratives in those. But there, there have been studies of, for example, Peony Pavilion, Romeo and Juliet, and people are insisting that the tragic visions are complementary. Um, perhaps the modes of performances are similar. Uh, Wei, help us out here. What is your impression of Tang's work? What is it like? Um, full of emotions and refined and elegant music and poetry. And is there singing as there was in Shakespeare's yeah, performances? Mostly singing, I would say. Most of the time, the actors sing. And how should we imagine that? Because Western audiences were, were familiar with maybe Beijing opera. Is it like that? Oh, it's very different from Beijing Opera because Beijing Opera is more. Um, I mean, Tang Xianzhu's genre is you can call it Quanqi or even Chuanqi or Romance. It's very different from Beijing Opera because it's more refined. The the music instrument is more um, soft. It's not so noisy if you if you want to use that word. Or harsh, and, and perhaps. Mo- yeah, harsh. Yeah, harsh. To, yeah. to foreign yeah. ears. Yeah. 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 One thing that they have in common, in addition to music, that we mentioned is perhaps that um, both Shakespeare's works and Tang's works could fall under the category of poetic drama, in that um, there are not only songs and singing involved, but also um, it's in verse, which is significant. And it does take an effort to kind of push that to a modern audience, to, to modern audiences who are native speakers of Chinese and native speakers of English, um, respectively. So it sounds as if Tang is such a beautiful playwright, but you have to work to make this case of him being kind of a Shakespeare of China, perhaps. So what does lie behind China's perhaps promoting Tang on the global stage as a Shakespeare? And and you said this goes way back before, for instance, a more recent push on China's part of soft power, as it's called. But is this a kind of political branding move? Yes, I, I think I think the recent promotion of Tang is very conscious. I see that on the same scale as the establishment of Confucius Institute across the world. And the establishment of Confucius Institute is not really to promote Confucianism, but it's comparable in turn to the establishment of other government-backed initiatives to promote their cultures. There are Goethe Institute, the British Council, Alliance Francaise. So, so this is not the first, but, but it's um, uh, interesting to see in terms of the projection of soft power. They would pick a poet like Tang. I think he has enough canonical status within China. This, there are debates about whether he's China Shakespeare, but there's no debate about the achievement, his artistic achievements. And so no surprise, I think they would pick this poet. And in picking this poet and in, and in projecting or introducing the world to Tang, they've also 
the government has made connections to Shakespeare, and I think I've I've read that there was an adaptation combining Coriolanus and one of Tang Chunsu's plays. Correct? Yes. What was that like? I haven't seen it. It was in London, but they combined it. In fact, kind of bits and pieces of Coriolanus in. Chinese operatic style combined that with Tang's um, um, areas and, and scenes from Tang's own place. And kind of they... Oh, that sounds kind of trippy. Yes, it's uh, very... <laughs> A mashup. Uh, challenging. And they, they put all of that into somehow one place. So it's all in one evening show. Um, very mixed reception. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, Wei, how do you see... What lies behind, I guess you could call it branding, maybe that's too cynical, or, but this branding of a Chinese Shakespeare. And I'm thinking that, of course, going back to Tang's time, Shakespeare was not known at all in China. And I would imagine that comparing Tang to any foreigner, right, a foreign writer back then would have been an, an insult per, or perceived that way in China. But now it plays as a compliment, at least to the West. So what changed and and when and I understand I'm asking you to condense a century or so of Western imperialism towards China here well uh, one way of looking at it is to show China has um, a similar writer or poet with Shakespeare to prove China and the West might be not so different I think that's one way of looking at it and Chinese culture could also be very humanistic um, very poetic and yeah to to try to compare Tang Xianzu and Shakespeare um is one yeah i i would add also that i think in tang's works there are generally no perceived ideological controversy controversy right so tang could be seen as a high profile and convenient and somewhat safe choice and he does have an international status. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, China can say Tang is the Shakespeare of China and Western ears hear the same thing. Everyone knows what that's supposed to mean. But it does make me wonder, what does that mean to Chinese people, that phrase? What does Shakespeare, how do, how do the Chinese view Shakespeare? Um, well, Shakespeare is one of the greatest uh, writers in the world and every Chinese knows that. But I'm not sure if every Chinese would call Shakespeare is the greatest uh, writer in the world. People are familiar with Shakespeare and educated people love to see Shakespeare staged. That, that is very true. Um, there, there's this unofficial genre sometimes dubbed um, white-collar theater. Hmm. The kind of um, theater plays that are usually light, if you will. It's, you know, people go on a date. People go see this after work. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but not everybody knows Shakespeare. Mm. I want to talk about the history of Shakespeare in China, though, because it, it's truly unique. And and going back now to the founding of the People's Republic, I, as I understand it, Shakespeare was repopularized in China by the Russians, by the their big brother in, in communism, the Soviet Union, and that the Russians inserted Marxist interpretation into Shakespeare. And Alexa, you've written a lot about that. How did that come about? So actually, it all started with Karl Marx's own writing. You know how Marx liked to quote literature as examples. Um, and that gets picked up by the Soviet critics and then translated into Chinese. So there has always been 
a perceived affinity, if you will, between communist critics and writers and the so-called Shakespearean humanism. Shakespeare has been seen in, under various regimes as the spokesperson for the proletarian masses. But then there are also times when he's seen as speaking for the landowners. So it's, it's really interesting history. As for the Soviets, of course, as you mentioned, they are China's big brothers, and not just in politics, but also in the arts. They brought in a lot of um, Soviet experts, and one of the highest profile cases is actually a production of Much Ado About Nothing before and after the Cultural Revolution. And that was seen as um, a project to kind of to further appreciation of Shakespeare, but most importantly, this is seen as an apolitical project. The darker aspect of the comedy is completely erased. It's about the bright future of the socialist state. And that itself parallels Shakespeare's reception history in the Soviet Union. So Shakespeare has always been there. Oh, and I can see how the comedies, of course, work better than the tragedies or the historical plays, obviously, yes. because they fit this apolitical category. Exactly. They kind of, because the history plays, tragedies, they're perhaps too close to home. And in fact, you mentioned mm-hmm. Xi Jinping earlier, you know, the Chinese president, in, in his 2015 state visit to Britain, he quoted quite casually the Tempest, what's past his prologue, to British Prime Minister David Cameron, among other instances. So, so there's always been a, I think Shakespeare for the Chinese leaders um, is a gentleman's calling card. And, and so both in the Soviet Union and in communist China, there was a knowledge of Shakespeare. I, I believe they also, I read in your work that they also translated biographies of Shakespeare from Russian into, China, into Mandarin. Yes, they did quite a bit of translation, and we understand um, Shakespearean biographies is a creative enterprise, right? Because there are very few pieces of verifiable historical evidence. So a lot of this is conjectural work. What's interesting, though, is to you can learn a lot about a culture through the kind of biographies they produce, rather than it's not learning about Shakespeare's life. It's, it's rather about learning, you know, what does uh, the, the Soviet thought patterns, you know, what they think is important and so forth and so on. So all of that got translated into Chinese. So you might say mid-20th century China, they perhaps inherited a bit of that from the Soviets in terms of literary critical traditions and aesthetics. And just to get the timeline right, as I see it, at first Mao invested a lot of money in the reconstitution of Chinese culture. And there were a lot of theater companies created that, that actually did Shakespeare. And then the Cultural Revolution started, right? So did all of that come to an end at that point? Yes. The, basically, during the Cultural Revolution, they banned a lot of works. And unfortunately, Shakespeare was mostly banned or ignored, along with other foreign poets. And yet you write that it, it's this restaging of the 1957 production of Much Ado About Nothing that you mentioned that ended up marking the end of the Cultural Revolution. That sounds like a fascinating Right. Um, I'm afraid it didn't really mark the end, but after the revolution, the cast, everyone got together. They, they had aged. A lot of them had suffered throughout the revolution. So... They banded together and revived this play. I think it's more symbolic than, than anything. So for the audiences, the, a lot of them saw the original production for the cast. It is a nostalgic 
exercise. Well, they also brought in the Soviet artists who had, and the famous theater director who had coached uh, actors in in producing Much Ado About Nothing before the Cultural Revolution, right? They they completely did the whole thing over again. What's unusual? What's unusual about that is identical. Yes, it's like a carbon copy stage production. Hand gestures blocking everything down to every detail, and for them, it's group therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's totally refreshing. Like Shakespeare is. Finally, coming back, and、uh, you can have something really non-revolutionary. I would say,、uh, really artistic and really literary. I think that's kind of like a dream. And so, what is the through line from then to now? And we we talked about that just a, mo- a few moments ago. But how is Shakespeare considered in China now? Way is is Shakespeare just part of the pantheon? Do, do, or do Chinese scholars debate about whether he is one of the greatest playwrights or one of the great foreign playwrights? Well, I'm sure there's no debate. Shakespeare is definitely one of the greatest playwrights across the world.、Um, definitely, he's part of the pantheon, of course. And、uh, people are trying to restage and retranslate Shakespeare's works, and he's very popular. But there is this division between foreign writers and. Native writers, Chinese and non-Chinese, still. Yeah, there is, there is, yeah. So I would imagine too that there's a generational divide. Is that right in China? I mean, I, I would think a lot of older Chinese、uh, readers are still very much fans of Russian literature. That's the literature that they were really grounded in. Yeah, exactly. That's what I, I was about to say. Like Russian literature might be more popular among the older generations than Shakespeare. Yeah, indeed. I think Russian language has. Been the first foreign language for a long time, and、um, English came second or third. But of course, the situation has has changed since the nineteen eighties. And in in the university, you study Shakespeare as part of literature, or where? How is it placed?、Uh, literature, I would say, yeah, because I'm teaching Shakespeare to students of English literature. Oh, so it's not a language issue; it's it's in the literature department as opposed to say.、Um, yeah, I think Shakespeare. You can see Shakespeare in many departments, like in, even in departments of politics, teachers teach Shakespeare, and in in theater and in in literature as well. Many many people are using Shakespeare as part of their courses. Well, how is Shakespeare taught then in Chinese translation or in English? Well, if it's in English department, definitely it's in uh in the original, but in Non-English departments translations would might be used. And, and when you read Shakespeare, then are you most often reading Shakespeare in Chinese or in English? Both, I would say both. I'm teaching Shakespeare in translation. Like I'm teaching translation, so sometimes you have to refer to many different versions of translation of Shakespeare to teach. And、um, by reading Shakespeare, it's I think it's kind of difficult for non non-English speakers. So you have to rely on the translation. Ah, now before we talk about translation, which is such a tricky subject,、uh, let me ask you about going to the theater. Though,、so、when people in China experience a Shakespeare play, who's, sh- what are they hearing? Are they are they hearing Shakespeare in English, or are they most often hearing Shakespeare in Mandarin? Definitely Shakespeare in Mandarin.、Uh, <laughs> Definitely. Wei, is that true? Um, I think both, because there are a lot of touring companies coming to China. Like last year, I saw TNT's production of *The Taming of the Shrew*, and people are hearing it in English. But there are also also other Chinese adaptations of Shakespeare. So both. So both, and and when they、yeah. do hear Shakespeare in translation, whose Shakespeare are they experiencing? I mean, who who is the most common translator? Zhu Shenghao. Zhu Shenghao. 
And uh, please tell us more about Zhu Zhenghao because I only know very little and he sounds like an amazing person. I understand he, he took it upon himself to translate Shakespeare in the 1920s because just there weren't any good translations or any at all. Yeah, good. He, he's a genius. Like he, he died in his uh, 30s. So he had only a few years to translate Shakespeare and by relying on just one or two dictionaries. And uh, his language is extremely beautiful. Although, you know, if you, if you try to look back from, from a contemporary perspective, some of his translations might not be so accurate, but definitely you can see his genius in, in, in there. And you don't see that in other translators' work, like Liang Shu's. I don't see genius. It's such a tragic story, though, right? He, he got started translating right when World War II was, was happening. And didn't yeah. some of his translations get destroyed during the bombardment of Shanghai? Yeah, and then he died like in his 30s. But he, he really packed it in. I mean, he translated some 30 plays in two years, didn't he? Yeah. How did he die? Uh, TB, I think. Huh. So uh, this issue of Shakespeare in translation, I mean, Shakespeare poses so many translation problems in any language, but are there special issues with Mandarin? It's a little bit complicated because there are classic Chinese and modern Chinese. So most of the writers or translators translate Shakespeare with modern Chinese, like Zhu Shenghao. But he also combines some classic Chinese poetry in the translating of Shakespeare's poetry. For instance, uh, in Macbeth, the, the witch's lines were translated into classic Chinese poetry. And that's very fascinating. And also there are other writers in the early 20th century trying to translate Shakespeare with classic Chinese poetry. And I once saw a translation of The Tempest with, you know, the five-character Chinese verse throughout the play, and that's very awkward. And now there is a new edition of Shakespeare's work edited by Gu Zhengkun, and he's a professor from Peking University, and he translates Shakespeare with a kind of combination of classic Chinese and modern Chinese. So that's very fascinating, because when you're using classic Chinese, you can preserve the the poetry in Shakespeare. If you mm. if you try to translate that with uh, modern Chinese, I'm sure most of the poetry will be lost. There's so many pitfalls too. I know you you've talked about one example, uh, and this goes back to Zhu Zhenghao in his translation of King Lear, that in the first act, Cordelia used a lot of words to describe her love for Lear, and and Shakespeare used the word love, but Zhu Zhenghao translated that as filial piety filial piety filial piety piety yeah that's a very uh, traditional chinese ethical concept so but it's i'm sure it's not important in shakespeare but it's important to the chinese so when the chushan house translation was used by many uh, adapters uh, from classic chinese theater or from chinese opera they all uh, replace uh, love with filial piety and that caused a lot of um, confusion. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it can become a central motif in the play, and yeah, 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 carry so many so much meaning there. I, I think it's really interesting yeah. here because even love in Shakespeare, particularly in a play like King Lear, is itself complicated. There's this assumption that they're talking about, <laughs> oh, to start you know, with, yes. love as yeah. love, perhaps as modern audiences will understand it. Here we're talking about something that's transactional, you know, which of you shall we say that love us most? It's about loyalty, about so many things, so perhaps it's not so alien from the concept of filial piety, which emphasizes uh, lineage as well as loyalty and dedication. And responsibility uh, and Precisely, duty. and Lear has yeah. two bodies, right? So Lear 
is the father, but also um, the king. And it occurred to me that it's really fascinating um, bilingual production. And it's a bilingual King Lear. Some characters speak Mandarin, others speak English. So it really heightens the idea of kind of miscommunication and non-communication in the tragedy. And the most fascinating moment is in Cordelia's response to King Lear's. Lear's urging her to to try again uh, for, for lest she would mar her fortune, right? Um, oh, yes, this is and, the great failure of communication. Right, and it's failure of language, too, because the Cordelia is part of the Chinese diaspora in England, and, and she no longer speaks her, her father's language. And but, but she has a few Chinese words here and there, and, and one of the few words she has left um, at her disposal is menyo, which means nothing. And so that's quite literally nothing, my lord. Kind of a translation that simultaneously signals the failure of translation and communication because menyo means nothing. But at the same time, it of course infuriates Lear because how dare you say the few words you have for me is not love or filial piety, but actually nothing. It's literally nothingness. And so that gives Lear's response an extra layer of significance when Lear says nothing will come of nothing. Yes, and I, I, I want to pick up, too, on this idea that uh, way y- you were you introduced that you have a choice in the translations between going with a poetic, translate the poetry into Chinese poetry or, or not. And I know we did a podcast on Shakespeare translation into languages that have no common root with English. And Alexa, you were you were one of the principal voices in that podcast, uh, and we discussed that in Korean, there's no effort to translate Shakespeare into poetry. The poetic forms are just too dissimilar. So how does how does that work in the translations into Mandarin? I think translators working with a language such as Chinese, which in general, it doesn't have inflection, and tenses are not indicated. I was just thinking it makes such plays as Macbeth, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Macbeth is a play about time. Um, yes. The, the failure, kind of the anxiety about not having an offspring, among many other topics, it just makes it so much richer. There has been an effort to translate back into modern English, you know, those translations in various languages, you know, to allow people to take a sneak peek through the gap, kind of, you know, it's like a gap in the wall where they don't quite work, but but that's also where it's most interesting. Wei, what are your thoughts on translations that have succeeded and, and ones that have not? Well, I'm going to talk about this from a literary perspective because Alexa is talking about from uh, the staging perspective. I think there are two kinds of plays in China. One is called the Chinese opera. The other one is called spoken drama. And uh, the languages of the two are very different. And most of the translators translate Shakespeare with the spoken opera in mind. So it's modern Chinese and it's very vernacular and it's not very poetic. And I think that's a problem of, it's kind of misunderstanding of Shakespeare. And now there is a, and as I said, Gu Zhengkun and his whole team is trying to retranslate Shakespeare or he has done the work and he's trying to bridge the gap between spoken drama and classic Chinese theater because he's trying to introduce elements of classic Chinese into spoken drama or into the translation of Shakespeare. So if you read uh, his translation of Hamlet, the, you know, the, the soliloquy of to be or not to be, you will feel the, the rhythm of classic Chinese theater there, like from the 
原杂剧 or you know the theater in the Yuan Dynasty. You can feel that kind of thing in it. Because theater at that time was all poetic. Yeah, exactly. And the language has to be kind of classic and modern and classic. It can't be purely modern. I can't also be purely classic, but it can be between, and that makes sense. When you go to the, do you go to to see Shakespeare? Yeah, I do. A lot. Yeah, yeah.、Uh-huh. If if there is a Shakespeare play staged, I will go. But there's not a lot in, in in my city. What do the performances look like? I mean, are they stylized to to look like 16th or 17th century England? Are they modernized? Or they run the gamut? We've been we've been talking mostly about what they what they sound like. But what what, do, what does the audience see?、Uh, it's mostly modern Chinese costume. Why? Why?、Um, I don't know. Like in the 1980s, there is a one adaptation of Shakespeare, Twelfth Night, in you know in a in a costume of the of the Renaissance, in the form of Yue Opera, and that's very weird to me. And、uh, a lot of Chinese Shakespeare Shakespeare directors are trying to contemporize Shakespeare by placing him in a Chinese context, for instance, and to make Shakespeare. Closer to the Chinese audiences, rather than just you know、uh, staging Shakespeare word for word and with the original setting and the costume and everything. So, if you're going to see Shakespeare, then is it、uh, the kind of Shakespeare that you're talking about that you find interesting now to make it relevant to the audiences? Do they borrow traditions then from Chinese opera, and do you do they use costumes that are Are from Chinese opera, and and do they change the names of characters into classic Chinese names? They're if they're trying to adapt Shakespeare in the form of classic Chinese theater or Chinese opera, they would do that. And、uh, of course, they will contextualize Shakespeare into a Chinese、uh, culture, his historical background, and change the names and costume and everything. And sometimes people even don't recognize it's Shakespeare. That, that is very true. I think Shakespeare has. Literally become the contemporary of Chinese playwrights because even though they have full knowledge that he wrote in early modern England, there's this shared sense of his contemporaneity.、Uh, people are so used to seeing, at least on the Huaji spoken drama stage, that's the performance style that is close to Western realist theater. At least in this genre. People are used to hearing contemporary colloquial Chinese, and that is most effectively paired with contemporary costumes. If you see a Shakespeare in Quenchi or Beijing opera or Yuezhi opera, then you typically have elevated speech, and as we mentioned, therefore it would be quite odd to see contemporary costumes in this setting. So I think it's a function of China having these two distinct genres, and There are more productions of Shakespeare in the spoken drama genre. Therefore, it appears that Shakespeare very often appears on on, Chin- on the Chinese stage in contemporary costumes, which is not a bad thing. It's just she's such a contemporary. You know, That is fascinating. And how does government censorship or or concern about government censorship shape the productions? I'm not sure there is censorship regarding Shakespeare because he's. Well known, and he's、uh, loved by everybody. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the lack of censorship regarding Shakespeare. You can almost do anything, even when things that we expect to be somehow controversial. There was、um, a Tibetan film called、uh, Prince of the Himalayas.、Um, it's an adaptation of Hamlet, 2006, and it depicts obviously a prince who returns to Tibet to find a corrupt court. 
um, in need of reform. You, you, would, you would think that, that this plot line alone would trigger censorship, but not only did it not trigger censorship, uh, the film had an afterlife on stage. So, it, I mean. so Shakespeare flies under the radar, it, which is mm-hmm. interesting in that Shakespeare back in the day, flew flew under the radar using historical plays from uh, Roman times or from from the somewhat distant past. Right. There's a real parallel there. I think that has to do with the commercialization of Shakespeare these days. Um, This is not to say Shakespeare hasn't been censored in, in modern Chinese history. So, so there were multiple instances which we talked about cultural revolution, among other um, periods. It's just that I think post-1990s, increasingly, uh, Shakespeare is seen as part of the white-collar theater. Well, Wei, it does make me wonder, just like Much Ado About Nothing in, in Chinese history, is there one play of Shakespeare's that is very popular, that seems very accessible to Chinese audiences. I'm not quite sure, but I think King Lear is the most adapted by a classic Chinese theater, which means King Lear might be the most popular among traditional Chinese people because it has a lot to do with what? Filial piety, for instance. I agree. Lear has such a special status in East Asian cultures in general, and not just Chinese. It's hard to put our fingers on one popular play, but the other play that's, that has been doing really well since its first introduction in the 20th century is The Merchant of Venice. And it's not so much about the Jewish question or questions of conversion, but rather about female agency, as well as the, there's the, the play has become kind of a staple in communist critique of, of capitalism. So it kind of, the, the play has been turned into a cautionary tale of capitalism gone wrong, a pound of flesh. In fact, it was it, it was titled A Pound of Flesh. You can see where they're going when they, they translate the title as A Pound of Flesh. Absolutely. Well, that and I, I think that would go back to a Marxist reading of, of that play. But is it you're saying now it's about female agency, so it's being reimagined or reinterpreted for modern audiences? Yes. So Portia becomes the most interesting, attractive character. Shylock's still important, but Portia gains special significance, I think, in, in Chinese renditions of this play. That's just one example, but there are, I think there are many others. Hamlet, of course, the usual suspects, but, but Merchant of Venice seems to be doing quite well. There, there have been so many versions. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed uh, meeting and talking with both of you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Wei Feng is a professor in the School of Foreign Languages and Literature at China's Shandong University. Alexa Alice Jubang is professor of English at George Washington University, director of GW's Dean's Scholars in Shakespeare, and co-director of the Global Shakespeare's Video and Performance Archive at MIT. I See My Reputation is at Stake was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had a lot of help in making this podcast possible. We'd like to thank Dr. Ruru Lee, Professor of Chinese Theater Studies at the University of Leeds in Great Britain, writer and journalist Andrew Dixon, Liz Thompson, Philippa Harland, and Shi Wee Wang at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and Paul Hallman at the Dubroom Studio in West Hollywood, California. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you'll consider reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. 
We'd really appreciate your help. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.